Our scripture passage this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 through 28. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Matthew 20, verses 20 through 28. And if you're able to stand, please stand for the reading of and the honoring of God's word. Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. It's one of the sweetest reminders that we could possibly come upon in Scripture as we close the reading of that text. This whole matter of you being our ransom, O Christ. And I pray that that consideration would motivate um, eagerness this morning to listen to hear and to believe that you have something beautiful and powerful and challenging to share with us. And we ask that our lives would be changed accordingly as we go from this place. We love you very much, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here at the beginning of this new year, we are spending two Sundays talking about what it means to be a deep church, both individually and corporately. Last week, we talked about abiding in Christ, looking at John chapter 15. This week, we're talking about serving and servanthood, which happens to lie at the very heart of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. We're talking about this second because my goodness is serving connected to abiding as we alluded to last week, and we'll see more clearly today. Which makes such serving sharply countercultural compared to the increasingly transactional service of our day. The more isolated and individualistic we become, the more we have to hire out help to take care of basic tasks that a hundred years ago 
your extended family and neighbors would have attended to in a heartbeat. And the more secular we become, the more service becomes a commodity, something to be bought and sold rather than the produce of a generous heart. The emblem of our age, I was thinking about this, may well be an electronic tablet fastened to a plastic stand that you can pivot toward your sandwich shop customers as you avoid eye contact and ask them to answer a couple of quick questions. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I know those tablet pivoters and such are some of you are underpaid and that's a different conversation. It's just that now I hesitate to go up to the counter to ask for an extra cup of water because I'm anxious that that tablet's going to get flipped on me. Would you say that I do a good job or a great job or a, an otherworldly job? Please respond accordingly and tap your card when you're ready. So we're talking this morning about serving, a kind of serving increasingly foreign to our moment, a kind of serving that should therefore challenge our sensibilities, but also, and here's the really good news, profoundly encourage us as the people of God as we endeavor to be a deep church. Two reflections this morning as we make our way through this discourse Jesus has with the mother of two of his disciples, as well as, and really primarily, the disciples themselves. Number one, we're going to talk about fake greatness, and then number two, we'll talk about true greatness, fake greatness, and then true greatness. Let's start with fake greatness. For the longest time, I might have told you that this is the most, I guess you would say, annoying, for lack of a better term, passage in the Bible. Because I mean, here in verses 20 and 21, we have Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that is, the disciples James and John, asking Jesus to verbally guarantee them seats at his right and left hand in the kingdom of heaven. I suppose her posture is a bit heartening. She's kneeling, and I think this is genuine here, she's kneeling in reverence to Jesus as she asks. But at the end of the day, she's still asking for an advantageous future for her two sons at the expense of the other disciples. When I was growing up, I'm not sure it would have helped me to kneel when I was asking my parents to grant me eternal rights to ride shotgun in our van at the expense of my brothers. And you should know that we find the same encounter described in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, although in that account, the sons do the asking themselves, not their mom, Salome, and in fact, the way that they couch things is even more annoying. They say, teacher, check this out, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's really annoying, isn't it? And he said to them, this is wise beyond all comprehension, he said to them, well, wait a minute, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
Why the discrepancy between these two accounts in Matthew and Mark? Well, the Bible could just be an error. Someone got something wrong. Or as is often the case, the writers could have been focusing on different parts of the same event and or adopting different stylistic conventions. For example, it is entirely possible that both Salome and her sons asked basically the same question at the beginning of the conversation that they essentially repeated each other. If you're a parent of multiple children, you know how this goes when there's a passionate group request. Everybody just sort of shows up, and they get to talking all at once, asking for the same thing. Or the Bible is wrong. And feel free to look into this matter and draw your own conclusions. Two things about that, though. Number one, because there are very viable explanations for this discrepancy, other than there's an error in the New Testament, I would say that it's intellectually dishonest to make statements like, well, this discrepancy proves that there are errors in the Bible. It's one option that you have to compare with the other options, and then you determine which is most plausible. Number two, as I like to say, if Jesus rose again from the dead, I bet you top dollar the scriptures which chronicle that resurrection and so much more are supernaturally free from error. Surely the same God who can rise again from the dead can preserve his holy word from corruption. And before you accuse me of circular reasoning for saying that the resurrection proves the reliability of the scriptures and the scriptures prove that the resurrection really happened, please know that there are plenty of ways to study and to consider the veracity of the resurrection outside of scripture. If you are intrigued, let me tell you, I would love to tell you more. Now let's make things even more annoying. Are you ready? Salome was probably Jesus' aunt, as in the sister of his mother Mary, meaning that James and John were probably his cousins. Which means that Salome and her sons may have been trying to capitalize on their familial circumstances as a means to a divine end. Pretty annoying, right? The other disciples sure thought so. In fact, see verse 24, they were indignant at the two brothers when they heard about this request. Probably not because they just couldn't believe that anyone would ever ask for such a thing, but more likely because they wanted those seats themselves and thought that James and John were gaining an unfair advantage. The allure of status and power is fairly universal. Jesus responded very differently, though, mainly by asking a question. Verse 22, Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Even though Salome asks the question, the, the you that Jesus responds with here is plural. We can detect that in the Greek text, clearly directed at Salome, James, and John, and probably James and John in particular. Jesus knew 
who was really asking the question, which, by the way, aligns really well with the way all of this is portrayed in the Mark account we mentioned a moment ago. James and John, are you willing to share in my divinely ordained lot or future what is meant here by cup, common symbolism that's used in Scripture to refer to divinely ordained destinies for good or often for bad. And, of course, Jesus' lot, if you know where this story goes, was going to include a tortuous death on the cross. Because here's the thing. If we want to share in Jesus' glory, we are signing up to share in his suffering as well. Number one, we're signing ourselves up for potential persecution on account of following Jesus. I probably don't have to tell you that there are millions of believers around the world experiencing that right now in real time. And then number two, we're signing ourselves up to prioritize the interest of others above and beyond our own, often at very great cost to ourselves. James and John, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? We are able. Okay. I've had similar conversations down the street at Wyatt's when my kids asked to try some of my coffee, which I do not pollute with cream and sugar. And I tell them, you do not know what you are asking. <laughs> and then they're like, we are able. And then... They spit it out, and they ask me why coffee tastes like dirt, even though Wyatt's House Coffee resident was declared the best coffee in the state of Florida in 2022 by Food and Wine <laughs> magazine. James and John's enthusiasm to share Jesus' cup was a byproduct of their ongoing difficulties shared by the rest of the disciples in understanding that the deliverance Jesus was going to accomplish was on account of grave suffering and ultimately the cross. Jesus was predicting his own death over and over again. Matthew records one of those predictions literally right before James and John make their request. But it just wasn't registering because no one, not them, not anybody else, had a category for deliverance through suffering and a tortuous death. So James and John figured that whatever Jesus' cup was going to entail, surely they would be game for it. I mean, who wouldn't want to do a, a ride-along with the Messiah as he takes out the bad guys? And accordingly, their faith was somewhat shallow. It was there, but it was shallow. They were following Jesus, but they didn't completely understand who it is that they were following or why they were following him. And all of us would have been in exactly that same boat. And City Church, this is really important for us to understand this morning. One of the hallmarks of shallow faith is commodifying Jesus instead of abiding in Jesus. 
Or to put it another way, shallow faith lends itself to using Jesus as sort of a means to an end rather than finding its end in Jesus himself. Using Jesus as a means to which end? More often than we like to admit, personal greatness. Case in point, the disciples wanted to benefit from their proximity to Jesus to gain power and status. And the reason that we find all of this so annoying isn't because of our, you know, breathtaking humility in comparison to them. You know, I would never. That's not why. But on account of our proclivity for doing exactly the same kind of thing, which makes all of this awfully uncomfortable when we start thinking about it. Perhaps we commandeer Jesus as a means of platforming or building a brand for ourselves via social media or by, you know, this would mainly be for spiritual leaders, by working the conference scene or writing books or producing podcasts. Can some of those things be done well for the glory of God and the benefit of his people? Absolutely they can. But ulterior motives are rampant for that kind of thing. And the watching world can see through this and rightly finds it really off-putting. Or perhaps we commandeer Jesus for the sake of fitting in with our family or some other social group or maybe even to clean up our image so we can date that special someone. Or perhaps we commandeer Jesus for political expediency to appeal to our base and win elections. Perhaps we commandeer Jesus for the sake of material blessings, sort of a prosperity theology. Shallow faith fuels this posture to Jesus, which swings back around and fuels more shallow faith. And it's so deceptive because shallow faith can look so genuine. You know we're going to church. We're, we're making posts on Instagram about our quiet time. Shoot, we might even be leaders. But whatever greatness this might accomplish for us turns out to be fake greatness. Thus, the warning that Jesus directed to his disciples, you can see this in verse 25, concerning the so-called greatness of the Gentile rulers, such as Roman rulers, who took full advantage of their positional authority over people instead of using their status to bless. None of that has a place in the kingdom of God in large part, get ready for this, because those who live this way don't really know Jesus and therefore haven't been changed by him. Greatness in the kingdom of God is knowing the king and then living like it. Making much of the one who is truly great. Fake greatness has to do with making much of yourself. Which is why when we see examples of people who profess Christ, when we see people like that living like the Romans, you know, maybe platforming themselves under the guise of being spiritual gurus, sometimes leading abusively, you name it. When we see this, at risk of sounding here like Dr. Seuss, we should be mad and sad. 
we're pretty good at getting mad. And that kind of anger is understandable. It's justified, albeit sometimes it's a bit hypocritical. But church, are we also grieved when we consider that this kind of fake greatness means that those who are pursuing it are totally missing out on Christ? That is, to, to reference the metaphor from last week, they are dipping their toes in the water, if at all, when they could be swimming in the ocean enjoying its freedom and refreshment and power. That is devastating. It should break our hearts. And if we're commodifying Jesus too, we are likewise missing out on really experiencing and enjoying Christ. As we make our way into 2024, it's worth asking, is Jesus himself our goal? Or is our goal something that we believe Jesus might get us. And consider, by the way, that when the people of God live eternally with Jesus in the new heaven and earth, the main prize will be Jesus. So, might as well start rehearsing now, trusting that treasuring Christ above all else is such a beautiful, joyous, contented undertaking that it's literally the main event in heaven. Speaking of main events, we're ultimately trying to talk about true greatness. So let's follow Jesus' lead and do so as we come to the final part of our text. We've talked about fake greatness and now secondly, true greatness. Let's back up to verse 25 and then read through the end of this discussion. That is through verse 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Note the intensification in Jesus' language here from servant all the way to slave, which is reflected in the Greek text. Greatness is reflected, church, in deprioritizing your own interests in order to prioritize the interests of other people. Greatness is reflected in being sacrificially generous with our time and our money for the benefit of others, possibly even pouring ourselves out like a drink offering to reference the language that the Apostle Paul uses in description of his own ministry. And greatness means pouring ourselves out, especially for the sake of others that the world tends to neglect, yet God desperately cares for, widows, orphans, sojourners, the poor. How can this be? I mean, this is, this is so backwards. This is so countercultural in so many ways. How can this be? It can be because we're taking after Jesus, the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man language in reference to Jesus is everywhere. 
in the book of Matthew. It's in the other Gospels as well. It's an apocalyptic reference emanating from the book of Daniel. We came upon it this past summer in our Daniel series in Daniel chapter 7, in which the namesake of the book of Daniel has a prophetic dream. In the dream, Daniel sees a vacant throne in the heavenly courts that is eventually filled when an unidentified son of man rides in on a cloud, sits on the throne, and rules the world. No human was able to take that throne until this son of man, who is in worship by humankind once he takes the throne. Jesus was claiming, do you see this, to be this son of man. Which means that he was making a claim to the vacant heavenly throne. And yet, he got there by coming to this earth, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He served in his life, compassionately ministering to countless people, preaching and teaching and healing the sick and spending time with outcasts and sinners and traveling around with basically zero possessions to his name. And he served in his death, making his way to the cross. And a bloody death for many. For meaning in place of. A payment so that the many who would become part of his kingdom through repentance and belief would not have to pay for their sin with their own blood. Jesus was bringing deliverance. The disciples weren't entirely wrong. He was bringing deliverance. But he was bringing deliverance by means of a necessary exchange, which was a category buster for everybody. And in so doing, he was also an example of the kind of life his followers were to live. A life empowered by a full experience of Jesus in which we abide in him and are drawn in by him and are totally changed by him. Church, there is no real serving without abiding. But as we abide with the Jesus who ransomed himself for many, including any of us today who repent of our sin and put our hope in Jesus, As we experience this extravagant generosity, it spills over into our lives like a fountain. And being so filled with Christ, it is a privilege to expend ourselves for other people. I mentioned the Apostle Paul a moment ago, and he modeled this true kingdom greatness so so well. I can't remember who said this originally, but I can remember the gist of it, and it's still worth repeating. Paul prioritized others above himself, and he prioritized God above others. At all times, he was deprioritizing himself. And those are fascinating, very uncomfortable words in an age of self-prioritization. And let's not sugarcoat this at all. Deprioritizing ourselves entails a certain amount of suffering, for some of us, a lot of suffering. 
as we mentioned earlier, suffering perhaps on account of persecution and suffering on account of simply giving of ourselves sacrificially. It is so important that we name this for the sake of counting the costs of following Jesus on the front end and for the sake of avoiding complaining and grumbling as we go along. The individualism of our age is a factory for chronic discontentment and complaining. But followers of Jesus must bear in mind, as Paul Tripp puts it in his very excellent book, Lead, we must bear in mind that all horizontal complaints have a vertical component. Grumbling about the horizontal difficulty is at once a complaint against the one who lords over those difficulties. And here's what's deadly about this. A life of quiet or not so quiet complaint hammers away at our confidence in the wisdom and the goodness and the faithfulness of God. It causes you to rest less comfortably in his care. Complaining stands in the way of our abiding, which ultimately undermines our serving. And gradually we become jaded and cynical. So let's just go ahead and expect the cost of being a servant, shall we? Can we just expect it? Keeping in mind, and this is Paul Tripp again, that the church, this is so important, that the church is a gathering of unfinished people still grappling with the selfishness of sin and the seduction of temptation, living in a fallen world where there is deception and dysfunction all around. There is nothing comfortable or easy in this plan. The church is intended to be messy and chaotic because the mess is intended to yank us out of our self-sufficiency and self-obsession to become people who really do love God and our neighbors. God puts broken people next to broken people, not so that they would be comfortable with one another, but so they would function as agents of transformation in the lives of one another. When we actually believe this, by God's grace, we can endure as faithful servants who are abiding in Christ and thus be truly great in the kingdom of God. Servants who are open-hearted, always inviting new people into our lives, <coughs> rejecting any sort of relational exclusivity while still possessing the guts to speak truth to one another, I believe that there is a lot of very beautiful open-heartedness in the life of our church. I'm really encouraged. But surely there's always room for growth. And there is never a bad time to remind ourselves that there is no room for closed-door cliques here at City Church. Dare we not walk in the door, find a couple of friends, and then become unduly possessive of our friendships, never granting space for others to become part of our circle. By God's grace, we can endure as servants who care for one another so comprehensively that no one has unmet needs. See, for example, Acts chapter 4, verse 34. And by God's grace, we can be servants who are so impressed with Jesus that we become the most generous people in the world. Which, honestly, we should be. Because even if we lose everything, we still have Christ. 
who actually is everything. So for followers of Jesus, serving one another becomes a rich, meaningful opportunity. It's not a have to. Just as we said about abiding. And in doing so, we can be a deep, resilient, joyful church. Full of people who live like our friend, I'll just call her Mary. That's not a real name. That my wife and I got to spend some time with when we were in a conference in Southern California, where I, which is where I grew up in June. These are family friends, she and her husband. We were, we were staying at their house while we were at the conference. And when we were there, and they're well-accomplished people with a lot of influence in their community, Mary started telling us about this ministry that she's a part of that cares for single moms and their kids. And she was telling us about their, their weekly rhythms where they get together and they share a meal. And, and then she told us that she was about to get on a bus, a coach bus, and go with around 20 moms and their babies to a conference in Arizona. Eight-hour bus ride. Think about it. Eight-hour bus ride, 20 young moms, 20 babies, there and back. But there was this incredible joyfulness about it. There was a get-to. She wasn't checking a box. She was looking forward to being there more than anything else. And as she made the journey, she kept texting us pictures and introducing us to people that she was caring for and spending time with. It's possible for us to be that kind of deep church, so affected by the generosity of God in Christ that we pour ourselves out for one another in this sort of way. May it be so this year and beyond as we abide in Christ. Amen.